Hello everyone, and welcome to this special edition of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Aliff. This episode will be a bit different from what you're used to as it's been lifted directly from one of our Ask the Expert webinars. So please bear that in mind as this was a live in the moment conversation recorded over Zoom and won't match our usual audio quality. You may even hear our guests who are in very high demand getting a text or two. Usually these events are reserved exclusively for our members. However, due to the relevance of this discussion around our current political climate and its potential effect on private equity, we wanted to share it with our wider network. Up until 1.30 yesterday afternoon, the title of this webinar was Truss, a new cabinet, the opposition and policy changes. Following the news of Truss's departure, the topic of discussion has shifted to the fallout of her resignation. Who will be the next Tory leader? What will their effect be on continuing inflation and a likely recession? And ultimately, how will this impact the private equity market? We are joined by David Laws, former Education Minister and Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and Robin Granger, Exec Chair and Founder of GK Strategy, a political advisory consultancy specialising in advising CEOs and private equity funds. Now, over to Sam, David and Robin. Um, hello, everybody. I think people are still filtering in, but it is dead on one o'clock. Let's get started. Um, delighted to be joined this afternoon by Robin Granger and David Laws of GK Strategy. Uh, these guys uh, run a political advisory consultancy in Westminster. And when uh, when I started talking to them, we've been talking to, to Robin for the last year, 18 months or so. And when we thought it would be interesting to do a webinar uh, on Liz Truss and her new government and, uh, and the opposition and uh, how policy might change with a new prime minister uh, about six to eight weeks ago. We were quite excited about that content. Um, we revisited that content at the beginning of this week. And now all of that content's in the dustbin along with Liz Truss's uh, political career by the looks of things. So uh, we've had to uh, think on our feet and we're really excited about it because the story is ever changing. Situation is, uh, is very live. Um, but we're going to really take on, uh, we're going to think about the leadership um, runners and riders. We're going to think about how they might be able to continue to govern as a Conservative Party and uh, the risks of continuing to govern. Um, we're then going to go into the fiscal package and the OBR forecast that's coming out a week on Monday, 31st of October. So there's a lot that's got to happen between now and then. Uh, and then we might think about... Um, what might trigger the next election, whether we will they'll be able to serve the full term or whether there may be a, an early election and what that might mean in terms of the opposition and a, and a Labour government. So right now, I'm just going to hand over to Robin, the uh, founder and exec chair of GK Strategy, and he's just going to introduce the firm very quickly and then introduce, introduce David. Thanks, Sam. Um, hi, everybody. Good afternoon. What a time to be a political consultant. Um, we, yeah, we've, uh, we've been through this a few times over the last week and changed the agenda and the questions. Um, very briefly, I'm Robin. Um, I'm the, the founding partner and our exec chair at GK. Um, some of you know us. Um, some of you have worked with us before. Some of you may have read our reports before. Very briefly, because this isn't about us, is uh, we're a political consultancy um, and we do two different things, um, both complementary. One is that we work with um, private equity investors um, when they're buying businesses 
um, and we help them understand the political risk, policy risk, um, and the political context within which that business that they're buying operates. And we help that through providing political due diligence. Um, and we do about 50-50, so 50% of our work is vendor due diligence, and the other 50% is, um, is buy side. And then the other side of the business is that we work with businesses like yours, actually mainly private equity-backed businesses, to help them navigate, to help them understand, and to help them um, influence what's going on in Westminster and Whitehall. Um, so as you can imagine, we're all rather busy um, redrafting different biographies of different ministers and <laughs> um, never in my lifetime. And I've worked in the industry for nearly 25 years. Have I seen anything like this before? Um, that, that's GK. We worked on about 450 deals um, over the last 14 years and we created an inventive political due diligence. Um, I, I'm going to introduce David. David is one of our strategic advisors. Um, David has been with us for five years now, sits on our board and has uh, equity in the business too. Um, previously, David was an MP for um, 14, 14 years, the uh, MP for, for, for Yeovil, um, had lots of um, front bench positions for the Lib Dems and then was in the coalition government um, and spent most of his time at education um, and I think was a cabinet office minister too um, and worked a lot. I get told off for saying that David worked under Michael Gove. In fact, because it was coalition government, he worked with and alongside Michael Gove. Um, so it's full of interesting stories and in fact also worked alongside Liz Trust too. Um, so uh, and once wrote a book which included um, a, a biography as Liz, which called her Margaret Thatcher on speed. Um, so David now um, works for us um, a few days a month um, and also runs the Education Policy Institute, which is a think tank which works very closely um, uh, 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 alongside, well, works alongside Department for Education and provides policy insights and research around that. And we're very lucky to have him. He's very rare. Um, I've worked with lots of ministers and ex-ministers over the last 20 years. David is, uh, is the opposite to most. He's low ego and high, uh, high intellect and high intelligence. So we're lucky to have David. Um, Sam, I'll pass back to you. Great. Well, thank you both for your time and, and for talking to us this afternoon. As ever to the audience, uh, you've got a Q&A tab at the bottom of the screen and a chat. Maybe just use the Q&A. We, we really encourage you to fire questions at us. Uh, this is called Ask the Expert as a webinar series. So we have some political experts here with us. Um, all of you are, are running different shapes and sizes and uh, businesses in different sectors, which will have um, your own challenges in terms of political risk. Uh, but feel free to use this forum to, to fire questions at, at Robin and David. I'm sure they'd be happy to take them on and, and we'll deal with them at the right time in our conversation. So, right, where do we where do we start? We were going to start somewhere slightly different, but I think the obvious place, probably David, to start is to have a think and talk about the runners and riders for this Tory leadership uh, next election, which uh, hopefully we know is going to be a lot shorter, isn't it? It's going to, it should be done by next Friday, maybe even done by Monday or Tuesday, depending on who the runners and riders are. But t tell us who you know or think will really be in the running. Yeah, thanks very much, Sam. And as uh, Robin and you have said, it has been a most extraordinary period in British politics. But the decisions that are taken in Westminster over the next week or so may well also define our politics uh, and the way the country has run for the rest of the decade. So I won't say too much about the process of the election unless people have got questions. Most of you have, will have seen uh, that already. 
But the the big difference compared with uh, the last uh, time when Liz Truss was selected is that uh, candidates have to uh, have 100 nominations to be taken seriously and to get on the ballot paper. And that's designed, uh, it might have been designed to see off certain candidates, but it's certainly been designed to avoid a process that where we have to wait uh, weeks on end for uh, the next leader to be selected, because it will mean essentially that there can only be three or maybe two people uh, who qualify to be on the ballot paper on Monday. And actually, the plan is at the moment that uh, there'll be a vote on Monday and potentially a second vote. And that by the end of Monday, we ought really to know the choice of the Tory parliamentary party. And if um, essentially that that process doesn't narrow down the field to one candidate only, then there may have to be a an online ballot um, for the first time, I think, um, of the 170,000 Tory members in the country to select uh, the winner from the final two candidates, mm. uh, which would be a fairly extraordinary process to select a prime minister. And you might well wonder whether all of the rather elderly Tory membership in the country will be able to manage an online ballot. But I think the Conservative Party is probably hoping, maybe unwisely, that it doesn't get that far. So who are the runners and riders and what do they stand for and where is this likely to go? Well, as you know, there are a couple of potential runners and riders who have already ruled themselves out. So I won't talk about them in any detail. But Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, has again ruled himself out uh, just a few moments ago. Jeremy Hunt, the present Chancellor, ruled himself out yesterday. Uh, It looks very strongly as if Rishi Sunak uh, won Boris Johnson and Penny Mordaunt uh, will be candidates or will hope to be candidates because they've already got MPs coming out and nominating them. We don't yet know whether Suella Braverman and Kemi Badenoch, who got on the ballot paper last time, uh, will put their names forward. It seems quite unlikely that they would get through the the nomination threshold of uh, 100. So taking those candidates in turn, uh, Rishi Sunak at the moment, um, is the bookies' favourite. He mm-hmm. is 8 to 13 on favourite to be the next uh, uh, Tory leader and Prime Minister. He has probably th- around 53 MPs out of the 350 or so who've already publicly nominated him, 53. Um, and that compares with public nominations of 34 for Boris, who is in second position, and Penny Mordaunt, who's got 16 or 17. Uh, The Guido Fawkes um, uh, website um, is claiming that the numbers are slightly different and that Rishi's on 62, Boris is just behind on 57, and Penny Mordaunt is on 20. But they they are counting in to their numbers, people who they think are telling them privately that they're going to vote in a particular way and not those people who have nominated publicly. It may also be, given that they are are a fairly mischief-making political website, that they are more prone to talk to people from the slightly wayward end of the political spectrum. But at the moment, uh, both of those, both the public votes and the Guido Fawkes uh, website are suggesting that Rishi and Boris are the two candidates who are in the lead. What can one say about Rishi Sunak? Well, all of you will have seen him in action as Chancellor of the Exchequer. I think that he's way and away um, the most impressive of the candidates for Conservative leadership. He helped steer the country through the difficult times 
of the COVID pandemic. It may be a mystery to many of us why he wasn't selected uh, last time when there was a leadership election. But many Conservative MPs don't like him. Uh, they blame him for uh, raising taxes too much, national insurance contributions, for boasting too much about increasing public spending. And there's something about his bright, um, affluent smoothness Tory MPs don't like. There's a sort of cultural thing there, too. Yeah. So he, he, as perhaps with all of the leadership candidates, uh, is a bit of a Marmite figure. Um, what can we say about Boris Johnson? Um, I don't need to tell you much about him because you'll also all have seen him in action. And at the moment, he's allegedly somewhere over the Atlantic flying back from the Caribbean to take part in a leadership election. It seems absolutely gobsmacking uh, that uh, his candidacy could be taken seriously when there were almost 60 members of the government who resigned a few months ago out of disgust with his personal conduct and running of the government. Almost 60 ministers resigned, and he currently faces a live inquiry by the Parliamentary Privileges Committee as to whether he lied to Parliament. Um, in spite of that, he is second favourite on 15 to 8. Mm-hmm. Um, in spite of that, the Defence Secretary just announced that he leans himself towards supporting Boris. And you can tell how crazy the parts of the Tory Parliamentary Party are today, because amongst one of the MPs who have publicly nominated him this morning is a current minister who resigned um, Uh, in order to unseat Boris as Prime Minister just a few months ago and has now decided to re-nominate him. So uh, we know all of his weaknesses. We also know that he's seen by many people in the Tory party as being a vote winner and that there is a view that he is, uh, his sort of anti-politics works quite well uh, amongst traditional groups that haven't supported the Tories, including in the Red Wall areas, whereas Rishi Sunak seems to play better in the blue wall areas. Uh, And then the last one that I'm going to comment on in any detail is Penny Mordaunt. Um, uh, She is seven to two, you know, just uh, less less, uh, of a a second place candidate than uh, Boris, but she has a significantly lower number of public nominations to date. Uh, She's been in government for a long period of time in endless jobs in which she's generally stayed for sort of nine or 10 months and then moved on. Um, She has in her favour in the Tory party that she was a Brexit supporter and that she has, you know, quite sort of quite a range of different political views and that she's not Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. So she has the potential sort of to come through the middle as some kind of unity candidate. Uh, But she gains if there's a perception that Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson are just two Marmitish figures uh, for for the party to unite around. So um, we will find out on Monday uh, which of particularly those three emerges supreme. In the meantime, a lot of MPs are expressing their uh, support for particular candidates, but it's notable that some of the big beasts in the political jungle haven't come out yet. And I think what will be really interesting is to see whether later on today and over the weekend, you begin to see some of the bigger beasts uniting around uh, Rishi Sunak in particular, or whether some of those people fragment across the different leadership candidates. I think there are a lot of Conservative MPs, particularly the more sensible ones, who are just desperate uh, about the state that they're in. Um, 
recognise probably that unless um, she is elected as uh, the new Conservative leader and Prime Minister, uh, the, the Conservative Party could face absolute catastrophe next time round. And it will be really interesting to see whether that begins to pull together a group of senior Conservatives who unite around his leadership. I guess a sort of dream team for him would be himself as Prime Minister, probably Jeremy Hunt staying on as Chancellor, Penny Mordaunt maybe becoming uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary or something, Michael Gove moving into the Home Department uh, and, and possibly Ben Wallace staying uh, at uh, Defence. So if you're if you're pressing me for a view, it is um, Rishi Sunak. I think he's clearly the uh, superior candidate. I think he is the one who uh, offers the Conservative Party most the best prospects of surviving in the next general election. But I also thought that he was the superior candidate last time round, and the Conservative Party managed to pick. Liz Truss, so one can't yet write off um, these other two candidates. Right, thank you, David. I've got a question, which actually is almost the mirror of my next question. So the anonymous attendee who sent me this question, thank you very much. Uh, they, they, they're suggesting how depressed they are, but also saying surely one of the most, uh, the key consideration here is how the market is going to react to the successful candidate. Um, do you think the Conservative MPs understand how crucial the role is of the financial markets at the moment. And that's and that's that's so true when it comes to Penny Maldron. I suppose, you know, if there's anything to learn from Liz Truss, the step from, you know, a senior ministerial role into a prime ministerial role is an absolute huge um, chasm to cross. And can they really afford to make the same mistake again? Um, with Rishi and Boris, well, you know, you can't see those two coexisting together again. So that's, that's going to, create uh you know splinters and fragmentation in the market and jeremy hunt staying as um as chancellor has got to be key hasn't it as far as the market confidence is concerned i think it's likely to be the case that if uh rishi or uh penny morden won they would probably ask jeremy hunt to stay on as chancellor jeremy had very little treasury background <laughs> before he went there and I wouldn't have thought he was a natural Chancellor of the Exchequer, but he's probably done pretty much what he's been told by Treasury officials since he's gone there, and he's been seen to stabilise things. I think Rishi uh, would probably keep him on. I think Penny Morden would be under strong pressure to keep him on, particularly as her credibility is not as great in the markets. Um, the, the biggest worry for the markets would be, obviously, if Boris became leader, he was already believed to be fighting a battle before he was thrown out of the leadership position. Uh, he was already believed to be fighting a battle with Rishi Sunak over sort of fiscal prudence versus fiscal incontinence. And I think it's certain that neither uh, Rishi Sunak nor Jeremy Hunt would be willing to serve as his, his chancellor. Both of them uh, think he is um, not fit to be prime minister. I suppose there's a chance that Jeremy Hunt might feel obliged in the national interest to stay on if he was sufficiently worried about um, the state of the markets. But in terms of market friendliness, it's undoubtedly Rishi Sunak one, uh, Penny Morden two, and Boris is the wild card where you'd be really worried about going back into a sort of Liz Trust-like uh, bond market crisis. But can the MPs be sensible about this? Because I mean, the MPs, what 
that's driving the support for Boris is the fact that they feel that they're in a better position to be re-elected with Boris. He's the only one that's got the mandate from the country to govern. And uh, the red wall seats, which you suggested earlier, I mean, they're, they're going to come tumbling down with anyone else other than Boris, probably. So um, it's whether they can put their own sort of careers um, to one side and think about what's best for the country. And can can the Conservative Party really unite around one candidate? Um, who is Boris Johnson? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think on the other hand, are, are the people who are thinking of, of voting for Boris worried about the markets and thinking about enough about that? I think the answer is no. Uh, they are not going to be put off supporting Boris by what, what's been happening in the markets. And uh, they probably you know, think that last time when Boris was prime minister, things weren't so bad. But of course, uh, Rishi was um, then Chancellor of the Exchequer. The more interesting question that you raise, which I'll come back to when we consider the next general election and the prospects for the parties, is whether any candidate is really capable of unifying uh, this party at the moment. I think that probably nobody is. I think Rishi is not going to be loved by many of the Boris supporters. Boris is absolutely despised by many of Rishi's supporters, some of whom are saying they would leave the Conservative Party and give up the Conservative whip if Boris became Prime Minister again. And I think any possible leader will be managing a disunited party uh, until the next election. Yeah, and then that's going to be so difficult I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be faced with the same problems that Truss has faced and trying to get anything through the House in terms of, you know, um, the policies that need to come through is going to be very difficult, isn't it? Unless you've got a majority of the Conservative Party behind you supporting you. So, um, you know, Sunak seems to be the most sensible candidate economically, but is he going to have a United Party behind him, allowing him to do what he needs to do? Uh, um, no, he would probably have a repeat of what John Major had pre-97, where a large portion, but a minority of the Conservative Party was not happy with the policy direction of travel. Uh, and you'll remember John Major's description of the, the bastards in his cabinet who kept on undermining him. Um, that Rishi Sunak would have that problem and it would limit some of the things that he would be able to do uh, in government, including on fiscal consolidation, you know, because some of what people don't like about him is that he put up taxes, he spent lots of money, and if he has to deliver fiscal consolidation, he will have to consider that there could be um, Tory MPs on the right of the party who are very unhappy about him being Prime Minister, who might not be willing to go along with some of the things he wants to do, particularly if he wants to raise taxes. Yeah. If it's him, if it's Sunak, do you think he is likely to say to the country, um, there is a problem with legitimacy of, of my position, so we're going to work together over the next six to eight months, but then call an early general election in the summer or autumn of next year. Boris is highly unlikely to do that if he gets it. But if yeah. it's Mordrin or, or Sunak, do you think one of those two has to do that? No, I think their narrative, I mean, particularly if you've seen the opinion polls this morning where they're in, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're heading towards Liberal Democrat levels of, uh, of political support in the teens rather than uh, the 40s that they're used to. There is no way the Tory party can afford a general election for some considerable time. So 2024, mid-2024 is still the most likely date. I think that the Rishi Sunak message would be about stability, 
um, you know, put, dealing with the cost of living crisis, not wanting to be diverted by a two-month general election. Uh, the Conservative Party needs time to rebuild its support. So the, the only scenario I see for a general election early, you know, later this year or next year, and I only think it's a 10 or 15% risk, is if Boris became uh, prime minister again, I think that there might be um, uh, some Conservative MPs who are simply not willing to go along with his uh, leadership. Um, he could, of course, also be found by the Privileges Committee to have lied to Parliament, which could create a problem. I don't think the Tory party could then change um, uh, leaders again without a general election. So I think that the only scenario for an early election is one where Boris becomes prime minister and things really begin to fall away from underneath him. Uh, some of his MPs defect to Labour or the Liberal Democrats or may maybe give up the whip. Mm -hmm. OK, got another question. Inflation interest rates are key to SMEs in the future. Which candidate is likely to manage these best away from the political considerations, more focused on the economic issues? Well, there's no doubt, again, that, that Rishi uh, would uh, give a higher priority to um, keeping interest rates down uh, to a prudent fiscal policy uh, towards fiscal policy, trying to limit the extent to which uh, interest rates go up and inflation is a problem. So I think we can assume that a Rishi Hunt partnership would be running the tightest fiscal policy. Therefore, interest rates would still go up, uh, but they wouldn't go up quite as much as they were set to do so uh, under Liz Truss. Um, inflation um, is obviously a problem under any uh, political leader. And the restructuring of the energy price package uh, into something that could be direct support for consumers from April next year rather than a price cap could mean that statistically speaking, inflation actually stays uh, higher for longer and then obviously drops down as the price increases drop out of the, the baseline. So obviously quite a lot of inflation is driven by what's happening in Ukraine and food prices and labor market uh, pressures. Only part of it would have been due to the expansionary fiscal policy, which uh, the Liz Truss administration was initially planning. But in a Rishi scenario, you would have slightly lower interest rates, hopefully considerably lower bond market rates than under the trust period, and you would have a tighter fiscal policy. How uh, would the markets react to Boris, do you think? I think the markets would be seriously worried about Boris. Um, they would think that they were going to get um, a return to sort of fiscal incontinence. And key would be who his ch chancellor was. I think that um, it is unlikely that, I mean, it, it's certain that Rishi Sunak would not be his chancellor. I think it's unlikely Jeremy Hunt would be, unless he was so convinced um, that uh, he was doing some sort of public duty. Uh, and even then, you know, the question is whether that partnership could last. I mean, they really don't like each other, do they? I mean, they've, they've battled against one another. Yeah, I mean, they. I, the, 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 there's no great admiration uh, uh, for uh, Boris amongst either Rishi or Jeremy Hunt. Um, so I think the Boris would would. The question is, who would Boris uh, select as a chancellor? I can't think of anybody who has particularly obvious credibility, and it would be likely to be somebody that the markets would perceive as being under the instruction of Boris. Um, and so I think there would be a lot of 
volatility and there'd be a lot of concern. And the Bank of England are obviously hovering over the interest rate button yeah. on the 3rd of November, they meet again. Um, if there is a very tight fiscal package, they might feel they can get away with a 50 or 75 basis point increase in rates. If there is a return to fiscal incontinence and concerns about inflation, then we're going to be looking at 1% or one and a quarter percent or something. Um, and that takes us into a very different ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, on one of the podcasts or the Today programme this morning, there was a suggestion that Ben Broadbent, who is the um, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, had hinted that perhaps interest rates won't rise quite so quickly if the right candidate is chosen. So I'm going to really hope the Conservative MPs are listening and watching for that. Yeah, they um, they uh, the bank has got quite a difficult job to do during this period of time and needs to also avoid getting too involved in the politics of it. But there's no doubt whatsoever that the bank will respond to what's in the fiscal package and that that will have an impact on interest rates and inflation. Let's talk about that now then. So um, the order of things are that we might well, hopefully know and have a new leader early next week, the latest Friday next week. Is that right? I think the Conservative Party hope that uh, there will only be, you know, they'll be able to narrow it down to one person. Uh, if if there has to be a ballot, uh, then we won't know until the end of the week, until uh, late on Friday morning. Yeah, so then the new Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party then has to sign off on Friday. Well, it won't be Friday, will it? It'll be over the weekend. But the, um, the fiscal statement's on the 31st, isn't it? Which is a week on Monday. Yeah, that's a very tough time frame to meet uh, for obvious reasons. If um, if we, we do know who the prime minister is on Monday, uh, then that gives them enough time to agree a package. After all, the chancellor will have been working on it. Rishi Sunak knows the treasury very well. The problem is if we don't have a, a prime minister in place uh, until the end of the week, and if we don't, and particularly if we don't have. Uh, um, Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor, then it becomes practically quite difficult to meet the 31st of October deadline. And that's not just because a new Prime Minister and Chancellor would need time to think things through, but the way things work is that they need to send to the Office for Budget Responsibility the fiscal changes that they're planning in their statement so that the Office for Budget Responsibility can tweak its numbers based on what the government's doing. And the OBR can do that quite quickly, but they can't do it in, in you know, 30 minutes. Uh, and, you know, the, the budget documents uh, are, st we're still in a world where those things are printed. So realistically, you know, you do need a run in of a few days to allow this to happen. So I think for the time being, the Chancellor and the Treasury will keep the 31st of October date in there, but they will have to make a judgment on Monday, Tuesday next week about whether that's still realistic. And if it's not, they might have to uh, delay that for a few days. That's not ideal because the Bank of England meets on the 3rd of November. They won't want to delay that meeting and they will need to make a judgment about monetary policy based on their understanding of what fiscal policy is going to do. Mm -hmm. Is it a daft question to ask you what you're expecting to see in that? I suppose if... If it's Sunak, it's probably not not wildly different from where we are today with with what the Treasury and Jeremy Hunt are proposing. If it's Boris, could it be significantly different or, or more different? 
I think it would be terribly difficult uh, for any incoming uh, leader and chancellor to unwind the U-turns, including the U-turns of the U-turns. I mean, it's just got such a mess that I think that the the Jeremy Hunt unravelling of Liz's budget will probably remain in place. And as you know, that closes about 50% of the, uh, the, the hole in the public finances, which the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility is believed to have identified. But there is still um, quite a lot of money to find there. So the question is, what could close uh, the remainder of the gap? I think some of that will be closed um, by whoever is the Chancellor, penciling in a slower rate of public spending growth in the next parliament from 2025 onwards. The Treasury at the moment is forecasting uh, that nominal spending will go up just under 4% in the next parliament. So they could they could reduce that down uh, without creating any political pain during the current parliament. And that would, that would probably find uh, 10 to 15 billion pounds of the 35 billion of savings. Um, debt interest payments that the government has to make could obviously be lower if the OBR is willing to pencil a lower expected profile of interest rates if fiscal policy is tighter. But there probably is a need to do some stuff on tax. Um, it looks as if Jeremy Hunt has been considering things like windfall taxes on uh, the energy utilities, possibly a higher bank uh, tax for a period of time possibly an extension of the freeze in the personal tax allowances, which brings in quite a lot of money. I think Rishi Sunak would at least consider, have to consider whether he wanted to go further in reversing Liz's trust, Liz Truss's reversal of his proposals to increase national insurance contributions. Mm. In particular, it would probably be politically easy to restore the increase in employer, in other words, business paid national insurance contributions. But I think the difficult thing there would be whether um, they could get that through the Conservative Party, because some of the, the votes on those budget measures have gone through the House. And if the first thing Rishi Sunak does is propose to increase some high profile taxes, he might simply find that he runs into a lot of opposition from his own MPs. So I would expect um, the incoming team, if it's not Boris, to have a, a combination of spending and tax measures that would be designed to try to fill the rest of that hole. Mm -hmm. Sounds like quite a bit of, <laughs> quite a lot of turbulence yet to come. Yeah, and in, in the meantime, I should mention one thing, which is, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether public spending during this parliament will need to be cut in order to um, fill the hole in the public finances. And that sounds an obvious thing to do. The problem is that public spending is already being dramatically cut in real terms by the much higher rate of inflation. And if we were functioning in a normal environment, then the Treasury would be under immense pressure to increase the public spending totals to compensate for the higher inflation. Um, so it's very difficult to find additional spending uh, cuts now, given that real spending has already been cut um, by the higher inflation. It would be easy to postpone uh, the extra government spending on overseas aid. I think that's likely to happen, um, whoever is uh, chancellor. But that only saves a relatively modest amount of money. It's much more difficult to save money from the health service or education or local government. And one of the big 
economic and political risks is if inflation remains elevated for much of 2023, mm-hmm. then there will be upward pressure on public sector wage settlements for a second year. And if the NHS, schools and other parts of the public sector have to, have to settle for pay increases of the type that have been settled for this year, you know, five, six, seven percent for some employees, then it would be very difficult to hold the line on the public spending plans that are already there, let alone make further reductions to those. Um, And for Jeremy Hunt, when he became Chancellor, there were lots of really easy things for him to do to help to balance the books, basically reverse a lot of the things that Liz Truss had done. And they didn't require, on the whole, a lot of political judgment. The job that Jeremy Hunt or Rishi have to do uh, in the forthcoming statement is much more difficult because, you know, Treasury civil servants are very good in telling you how to make the numbers add up and what things you should be cutting and taxes increasing. But the politically elected chancellor has to judge not whether those things will balance the books, but whether they are deliverable politically. Can you get them through the House of Commons? Can you deliver them without you know, losing so many voters that you lose power? Mm-hmm. Um, we've already seen the government confirm that it's going to keep the triple lock on the state pension because so many pensioners vote conservative. They simply can't afford to be seen to go back on that. So the, the fiscal statement is not primarily... Uh, a job about how you find 30 or 35 billion of of, um, extra revenues or savings. It's about how you do that and manage the politics of it. And that's the really tricky thing that um, that's where the added value has to be of a good chancellor or a good prime minister. Mm -hmm. Robin, let's bring you in here. What what does this mean, do you think, in terms of... um, policy setting and policy change for the remainder of the term of this government? I think businesses should probably prioritise talking to Labour at the moment um, with the the prospect of them becoming the next government and maybe a minority government. Um, I think that there's a certain level of continuity with departmental officials. um, So there'll be some continuation of policy, um, less... um, policy that isn't particularly political. Um, So we're working with a number of businesses at the moment, lobbying around, I mean, things like part, you know, things that don't have to be voted on in the House of Commons. Um, So regulations or delegated legislation. So there are things that will still continue to happen. Um, I can't imagine there's any going to be any radical policy shifts or changes um, over the next two years leading up to leading up to the election. Um, and a lot of the businesses that we're working with are asking us whether it's even worth engaging government at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But I think from a political risk mitigation perspective, it certainly is um, getting in and talking to, um, maybe not talking to ministers, um, and actually the focus should be on civil servants at the moment. Um, I know there's been a frustration um, among civil servants that lots of, lots of things have been held up um, at a, a, a ministerial level, but they have been progressing with certain policies and legislation and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think we're going to see hugely radically, po- radical policy announcements over the next couple of years as we lead up to the election. I think they've expended all of their political capital on a budget that just shot the markets. Mm-hmm. And so the job of the next person that's coming in, Prime Minister, is to settle the markets 
um, and uh, and retain some of that status quo. Uh, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but status quo that was there when you know Boris was prime minister. Mm. Um, um, and um, I think Labour Party is interesting with Labour at the moment. They're definitely in listening mode as they put together their manifesto, um, and they're under they're increasingly under the spotlight. Um, because um, you know they're 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 very good at announcing policies that haven't been and they haven't worked the numbers out on properly. Um, and, and increasingly, as we get towards an election, that scrutiny becomes um, even more and more. Um, so they are looking for policy ideas, um, and that and from my perspective, and and I think David's is that they they're most likely to be the next um, the next government. I mean, that's obvious to say. It's not. I don't think there'll be a majority government. In fact, and I think it might be rather a mess after the next election. Mm. And I'm sure. What, sorry, I might be preempting some of the things that you're going to get onto, Sam. Well, let's um, but, let's, let's yeah. talk about that now, David. I mean, what's um, they they let's say the Conservatives can hold out. They bring some stability. I mean, I, I I think it's really questionable whether they can hold out for the rest of their term. I think that there could well be a chance, especially if Boris gets there. Either, either of them. You know, or any, any of any of those three, they could be leading a completely dysfunctional government over the next six or 12 months, which might trigger a general election. Let's just say they get all the way through to when is it? When have they got till January? January 2025. Yeah. But I, I think earlier in the week you were saying they probably would be aiming for you like elections in the summertime um, when it's, it's a bit nicer to walk the streets. The voters come out. So maybe sort of June, July of. 24 is what they'd be aiming for so they haven't got a lot of time but um what does labor need to do to win how many seats have labor got at the moment labor have ba- have barely over 200 seats i think they had about 203 after the le- last election and there are you know 650 odd in the house of commons so people forget you know just how crushed labor was in the last election and Many people felt that it was an election victory that would put Boris and the Conservatives back in for uh, two full parliaments because Labour was so damaged. So um, obviously, at the moment, Labour would uh, would be is miles ahead in the in the uh, uh, polls and would win if an election was held anytime soon. Uh, but what the Conservatives have got going for them, as you said, is that they don't have to hold the election. Uh, provided they don't lose their majority, which is a large majority. They don't have to hold the election until January 2025. They're most likely to want to hold it in May, June 2024, so they're not boxed right into the last moment. But even that is still quite a long way away, and there's that famous Harold Wilson quote about a week being a long time in politics. So quite a lot could happen. Um, nevertheless, um, the if we look at the bookie odds, before I consider what I think is most likely to happen, Uh, In spite of the fact that Labour have only got just over 200 seats, they are now, thanks to the calamity of the last few weeks of of Tory um, machinations, they are now um, the favourites to form a majority government at the next election. They are four to a Labour majority government is four to five odd favourite. A Labour minority government um, is 10 to three, second most likely option. Conservative majority is now five to one outside. Outside, you know, the the least likely uh, that it's been for as many years as one can remember. And a Lib Dem Labour full coalition is seven to one outside uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. So, I think this obviously depends hugely on the extent to which the Conservative Party can unite itself around 
a competent leadership over the next few years. Uh, my view is that if the Conservatives choose Boris Johnson, then the next couple of years are going to be extremely difficult. And I think the mood in 2024 will be so anti-government uh, that it is likely that we could see a Labour majority government. We'll see one of the biggest electoral moves in recent British history. If the Conservative Party decide that electoral survival is more important to them than all the internal um, you know, differences of view about personalities, and they can unite around a sort of Rishi Sunak, Hunt, Gove, Mordant-type leadership and pull the big beast of the party in, then they're at least back in the game uh, for next time round. And what they've got going is time. What they've got going is Labour starting with only 200 seats. And what they've got going is that the, although the Labour team is clearly much more electable and impressive than the Corbyn lot, they are still nowhere near uh, the quality of Labour people and Labour preparation in 1997. So at the moment, Labour are very reliant upon the Conservative Party losing the election. It's not so much that you know, Keir Starmer or the Labour policy agenda is attracting the public towards them. It's a classic government's losing election rather than opposition's winning them. And that's the big risk for Labour, uh, that their success at the moment in the polls relies hugely on the Tory party continuing to to do disastrously. So you might think, well, if if they do really well, could they they actually win next time? Are they a good bet at Mm -hmm. uh, five to one outsiders? I think the answer to that is probably no. And it's the mountain they have to climb. It's the state of the economy and inflation. And it is the fact that they're probably going to be such a divided party, even if the Rishi team get in. They're going to be a lot of the Boris Johnson lot who are very unhappy. It's going to look like a divided government. Um, And I think, therefore, that even if Rishi becomes the prime minister, uh, what that does is it makes it more likely that there might be a Labour minority government, in other words, Labour governing, but without a majority in Parliament, rather than uh, the Tories being able to turn it round to the extent of forming a government themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. That's obviously a very long range prediction, and a lot can happen uh, in 18 months, but it looks to me the best sort of bet, uh, given where we are now. Yeah. Could a coalition between Labour and Liberal Dems work? I think that it's very difficult at the moment, um, and that's not because the Labour Party wouldn't want it. I'm sure Keir Starmer would much rather be in coalition with the Lib Dems than run a minority Labour government. The problem is, firstly, statistics. The Lib Dems only have 14 seats at the moment, so the power they have in Parliament is much less than it used to be. And, you know, maybe they will double that number of seats next time. They could do much better if there is a complete landslide. Uh, But they are still in a rebuilding phase after the massive loss of seats, which I remember so well when we were last in coalition. So the mentality of that party is going into coalitions is highly dangerous. We've almost become extinct as a party. We want to increase our number of seats and become a serious political party again. Uh, and if we go into coalition, all of that could be endangered because we'll lose our identity. Uh, we will have been elected in many blue wall seats, you know, where the Tories have lost. And then we'll have a Labour government that we'll be associated with and we will suffer the penalty from that next time round. The only thing that could change that 
as it always is with the Lib Dems, is any kind of undertaking about electoral reform. But electoral reform is difficult to get through Parliament. There are lots of existing <clears throat> interests in all the parties for the status quo. It might or might not take a referendum. It probably is, in my view, a two-Parliament mission. Um, so I think that a Lib Dem Labour coalition is unlikely unless Keir Starmer was really willing uh, to... Um, contemplate delivering electoral reform and do, and doing a deal with the Lib Dems, which would probably take two parliaments to deliver. And that also is a tough calculation for the Lib Dems because they'd have to judge whether they could survive over a, you know, another general election before the electoral reform was delivered. So it's not easy at all. And, and that's why, that's maybe why the bookies um, are suggesting that a formal Lib Dem Labour coalition is even less likely than the Conservatives winning next time. I think a Labour minority government is at the moment more likely than a coalition government. Right. Got a question here. Does, does this make the SNP likely kingmakers? Probably not. So I think small in terms of the number of seats anyway, and Labour can't stand them, can they? I mean, both the both the Lib Dems and the SNP could not remotely contemplate supporting or propping up the Conservatives under current or possibly any circumstances, but certainly not at the moment. You know, when the Conservatives lose in 24, if they lose, there will be no any party in Parliament that wants to go anywhere near keeping them in government. At the same time, Labour uh, regard the SNP as toxic. You know, it was the SNP that took many of the Labour seats in Scotland. The SNP's agenda is to get a referendum and then to get out of the uh, United Kingdom altogether, uh, and Labour are petrified that the Tories will rerun a campaign against Labour next time, which is all around coalition of chaos and Labour being propped up by the SNP. So, so I think that it's highly unlikely that the SNP uh, and Labour would form a coalition. They're only that the odds of that are sixteen to one. Uh, in other words, very, very, very unlikely. Um, but it is possible, again, that there could be a Labour minority government and that it could be reliant upon the SNP and Lib Dems uh, on a vote-to-vote -vote basis, you know, Queen's speech, budget and so forth. And it could be that those parties would keep Labour in power, but not being able to do very much because Labour would be reliant upon SNP and Lib Dem support for anything that went through Parliament. And that is not a great position to be in. I mean, I think Labour would be, could probably manage a situation where they're in, in minority government with some kind of um, deal with the, with the Lib Dems, where the Lib Dems would stay on the opposition benches, but support Labour on some particular issues in exchange for other undertakings. But a Labour government that was genuinely dependent upon the SNP mm -hmm. uh, vote by vote would be in a highly um, difficult uh, position because the SNP's only objective would be to extract a referendum co um, commitment from them. And that would not be a very stable environment. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just we've got five minutes left. So I'm going to fire some questions at you here just coming in here. Um, just staying on the topic of Labour. Um, if Labour win the next election, what impact could they, this have on the market's inflation and interest rates, i.e. does the city have faith in Labour yet? Yeah, I mean, given the shambles of the last few months, 
at the moment, you'd have to say that um, yeah, Labour have probably as much credibility as as the existing Conservative government does, and I think would be following very similar fiscal rules, um, allowing some borrowing for capital expenditure, but otherwise trying to run a balanced budget and reducing the debt to GDP ratio over time. Um, and Labour governments generally don't have the, the, um, the goodwill of the market, so they start off having to tick all of those boxes. Mm. So I think we probably have a relatively fiscally prudent government. I think Rachel Reeves is quite an impressive shadow chancellor in waiting. But Labour would also want to increase spending on education, health, the things that are important to the Labour Party as a social justice party. Um, and that, I think, would inevitably mean that a Labour chancellor would eventually have to look for sources of revenue, which would be likely to mean higher taxes on business and higher taxes on um, higher earning individuals. So I think uh, you'd get a reasonable degree of fiscal prudence, but you, the, the, the tax uh, to GDP ratio would be a little bit higher and the spending to GDP ratio would be a little bit higher. And of course, the outgoing Conservative government would probably leave, as the Tories did in 1997, a set of public spending plans which were completely unrealistic and which would require Labour to upwardly revise them. In other words, uh, immediately sort of uh, having to deal with quite difficult fiscal circumstances. That was a, a trap that the Tories left in 97, and it's one that uh, they'll certainly be leaving next time round if they lose the election. Mm -hmm. um, Back to inflation interest rates, we've just got a question in terms of where, I mean, you know, crystal ball and all that, uh, but where would you expect them to be um, by October next year? If uh, if the next general election was slightly ahead of fixing, where, where do you think inflation and interest rates will be by October 2024? Wow, um, you are uh, October 24 and 23. Um, well, <laughs> this time now, Next year, um, given the slowdown of the economy, given um, energy price rises dropping out of the index, given the increase in interest rates, we would certainly expect inflation to be much lower than it is today. So, you know, we're now at 10 percent. We'll probably peak at 11 and a half percent. It depends. The level that we'll get down to in the autumn of next year depends hugely on what happens to energy prices and the energy price support package for businesses and consumers, because the trust package that capped energy prices obviously would have brought inflation down quite quickly. But if you give the fiscal support directly to consumers in the way that Rishi Sunak previously planned to do, then you give people money, but you don't cap prices. And the effect of that would be to keep the headline rate of inflation up for longer. So I think um, if the I, th I think that how how much lower inflation is in the autumn of next year depends hugely on what happens in Ukraine and to the energy price support package. Um, but in any case, the Bank of England will be looking through the headline rate to what's really happening to the underlying rate of inflation, what's happening to wages, uh, what's happening to the core rate of inflation, X food and energy prices. Um, and I think we've got to hope that that is and got to, got to think that that will be a lot lower next year. Um, but I think that it's difficult to judge um, how much lower it will be and when the Bank of England will, will be able to start moving from higher interest rates to lower rates. I, I would expect interest rates to peak out in the UK in the in 
the um, spring of next year. Yeah. But I don't. Know if, but I, I think we can't tell whether they will be um, falling in the autumn of next year or whether they will be at a higher level with the banks sort of waiting until inflation really breaks lower. Mm. Uh, as for October uh, 2024, it's a hell of a long time away. <laughs> uh, I, I would hope a lot of what's uh, happened recently will have worked its way out of the system and that we'll be much closer towards the officially targeted rates of inflation. Uh, but it wouldn't be surprising if we're still on the wrong side of those and uh, we may have more normal rates of interest than the extraordinarily low ones that we've had for the last mm. 50 or so years. So maybe we are back in a an interest rate environment that's going to be more like a 3 to 5% environment than a, a 0% to 1% environment. Okay. Last question for you, Robin. It's almost two. Um, I mean, what are you seeing effects on your deal pipeline? Are you seeing an effect on private equity deals being postponed or cancelled yes we are um but mainly just this week actually we've been doing some vendor due diligence on two different businesses one's in the uh, property space and the other one is an independent provider into the nhs and we're providing political vendor due diligence they both asked us to pause our work until um until uh, uh, non actually um uh, uh, both of them have been advised by their corporate finance investment bankers um to hold the process um so we are seeing that and our certainly our our, our whip list is a lot smaller than it was say a couple of months ago um i think i'm hoping that we're better protected because we work mainly in the lower in the mid market um and um but we have a bit and, and you know they rely on slightly less less huge amounts of debt um, because the debt market markets have, have been hugely impacted um, but they rely on less debt than the big LPs um, of this world and those enormous deals um, but we are seeing a slowdown um, in, in debt. I mean wh why would you bring your business to, to, to market at the moment especially if you were hugely reliant on government as a customer um, or, 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 or reliant on government regulations um, driving your business um, so yeah, there has been a, a delay. I hope they're just being postponed, um, and they'll come back to market and um, probably January, February time. Yeah, a lot will depend on who's who's going to take the box seat, isn't it? I and mean, if we can get a sensible leader, again, you know, reiterating the points we've made that the party can uh, unite around, and we can have some stability and uh, a sense of confidence in them as a team and as an individual, then. Um, you know, the private equity market will be back. They've got plenty of money to spend. Yeah, They need to get the money out the door. So I, I think we're probably likely looking at windows of lots of activity and then, you know, um, windows closing for periods of time when there's great uncertainty like, like now. Um, thank you. Thank you both. That was great. Thank you very much, David. Um, thank you, Robin, for joining us. I'd love to do it again, actually. I'm sure our audience would like us to do it again. Of course. Uh, when, when we know uh, what the next chapter looks like. Um, but let's keep our fingers crossed for next week. Yeah. Right. I can, I can come back and tell you uh, why I was wrong uh, next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can revisit all the content again. Thanks, okay. Sam, for arranging it. And thank, thank you, you all for joining us. Thank you, Sam.